US MBA internship interviews are coming out to the tail end. Uh, a few of our candidates are still interviewing, but the majority have done first round and second round. McKinsey is still to go for most candidates in the final round. But I think with a fair degree of accuracy, we can predict how the candidates would do. We can also draw some lessons learned and some observations for other candidates going through their own internship interviews at other schools. But also, this would also be good advice for those internship candidates who did not get placed in this cycle for the uh, U.S. hiring. So, bottom line, in terms of how we did, uh, I think we, I think we would end up with about a 65% placement. We're currently sitting at 60%, but it's possible that we have a few other candidates still doing final rounds, and I'm pretty confident they'll be able to get through uh, to either McKinsey, Bain, or BCG. We count 60%. We only count the percentage we place at the big four. McKinsey, Bain, BCG, or Roland Berger. We don't count uh, Accenture and Deloitte. So if you count those, it'll be a little bit higher, but I'm going to leave that out because they weren't really first choices for the candidates we were working with, and that's not really the reason why they chose to work with us. So at the moment, we're sitting at just about 60%, but I'm guessing we'll get two more placements in the next um, week, and that will take us up to about 65 maybe more, right? So 60% is obviously less than the 80% we traditionally place. And there are obviously a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, this is the largest internship class we've ever taken. I mean, our class for this cycle across the major American universities was over 30. So that's a really, really big class. Beyond that, internship placements are obviously less than full-time placements because consulting firms take in fewer people for internships. And we were aware of this before we took in such a large class. However, given the fact that many of our candidates were non-American nationals, that means they were placing for international offices, we, quite, we felt confident that there was a chance we could get 100% placement. But again, internships, just fewer spaces. So while we were, we were hopeful that we could score 80% or higher, we were expecting somewhere around 60-65, which is where we ended up anyway. Obviously, we're not proud of a 60% placement rate. Anyway, we guess the 65% is lower than what we intended. And there are some lessons for us here, but also lessons for candidates in terms of how they could have done better. So I think the first thing, what are the lessons for us? I mean, that's most important, right? So what are the lessons? I think the first thing is that this year, there were some changes in the MBA process for um, applicants to internships. I think let's just talk about the major changes and how it affected us. Okay, firstly, Harvard had a lot of changes in the sense that the MBA class was traveling through emerging markets over the December period. It was a new system put in place by the new dean, and he encouraged students to travel internationally. So what that meant is that a lot of Harvard candidates didn't have enough time to prepare. And because they did not have enough time, it obviously affected their planning and training and so on. So that's the first one. And it affected us because candidates couldn't be properly screened, even though we made a big effort to do so. Also, candidates couldn't dedicate enough time. It was just really difficult for candidates to be prepared. So that's the first one. The second one is we noticed that this was the first time we've seen the PST rolled out to every single school with which we are dealing. I mean, typically the McKinsey problem-solving test isn't given to every school, but this time it was. And I think that did derail many candidates in the sense that a lot of them while their confidence levels were high going into the interviews, it was shaken a bit by the performance on the PSD. They obviously passed to get the interview, but they didn't do as well as they thought they would do. And the, the, the third change, which I think is, um, is quite significant, is the schedules in the schools. I mean, typically there's a pattern in the way McKinsey, BCG, and Bain interviews different schools. You know, Ross goes first and so on. But this time we noticed the schedules had shifted a little bit. 
And why is that important? Because what that happens is that depending on the combination of offices to which you are applying, your interviews could be held for BCG on one day, Bain the next day, and McKinsey the third, day, the third day. So you're having interviews one, two, three, three days in a row. And that happened to quite a few of our candidates that made it very difficult for them to, to be placed. Well, you know, so a lot of them did get in, but it made it difficult for them to prepare. So, the, so what are the lessons for us? Yeah, I think the first one is that because many of the students had compressed Decembers, they, in our opinion, while we screen them the way we always screen, we typically have an interaction with our clients about four or five times over email and sometimes even verbally before we do the screening call. So, for example, we sometimes speak to a client, cl potential client up to three times sometimes twice before we screen them. So we get to know them over time. You know, it's never the case where someone writes up to us and say, hey, you know what, we want to take you in, we, we want to work with you, and we say, okay, you have to be screened, and then we just do the screening call, and that's the only interaction with the candidate. There's usually different levels of interaction. Of course, sometimes we do take in people with just a call, and it works out well, but we prefer to get to know them better. So obviously our screening is going to change quite a bit as a result of... Um, of... of how we did in terms of placing the MBA candidates. The other thing we noticed is that in our screening, we kind of distinguish between candidates who are low in self-confidence and those who are strong in self-confidence. And we don't penalize people being low in self-confidence. We think how we could help them. And while we have been good at doing that, I think, I mean, our record tends to speak for itself. I think one of the things we've noticed is that candidates who tend to be very aggressive confrontational, emotional, as opposed to just having low self-confidence are very difficult to place. And one of the things we are going to do in our screening call is develop questions that help us screen out those candidates. It's not that there's anything wrong with those candidates, but to be fair, the consulting lifestyle and the pressure to even prepare is so intense that most candidates who exhibit these characteristics naturally, it becomes accentuated during the interview preparation process. And we've had pro problems this year where candidates actually became confrontational with interviewers. I mean, there's no room for that, right? Um, I'm sure the candidate has many reasons why that happened, but the bottom line is you have to be professional at all times. And to be fair, I actually know some of those uh, incidences quite well because I know the interviewers and, um, you know, it was uncalled for. And I've even heard it from the side of the candidate. The bottom line is that there was nothing that the interviewer said that should have led to that circumstance. So, those are some of the lessons we've picked up. We've also picked up some lessons in terms of preparation. We found candidates that prepare diligently but do not compress the training do much better than those who try to rush it through in two to three weeks. We've placed people who've rushed it through in two to three weeks. In fact, we've placed people who've rushed it through in seven days before. But those are exceptions that prove the rule. They are not normal. Um, we'll talk about more of the lessons as we proceed on this podcast. But I think the most important thing as you listen to this podcast and ask yourself, is what the candidate doing or what we're doing logical? And if what the candidate is doing illogical, why were they doing it? If what we are doing is illogical, why are we doing it? And you can always place a comment at the end of the podcast and we'll be happy to, to respond to you. So we've broken our candidates into two different segments. Um, and there's obviously a close correlation in terms of performance here. The first segment is what we call the ones that are diligent. And, you know, within two days of working with them, we can very quickly see this person is going to do well, right? They're going to do well. They're going to learn a lot from the training, firstly, and they're going to be placed. Uh, rarely are we wrong. We're mostly about 95%, 90% right here. And what determines a 
candidate that is diligent, right? The first characteristic is they're always, they're quite calm, I would say. They are very professional, very mature, and very calm. They don't speak in emotive language. Uh, that for us is very important. We'll talk about the um, struggling candidates later, but but basically our diligent candidates, that segment doesn't speak in emotive language. When you speak to them, they are very disciplined, speak, communicate very clearly, tell us exactly what the problem is, and then tell us why they were unhappy with it. But they never start by spending five minutes discussing how distraught they are and how they're pulling out there and how badly things went. They, they focus on the issue. Time planning for them is, is just amazing. I mean, we've had Harvard candidates who were traveling over December in all weird parts of the world from India to, I think some people were in South Africa as well. And the point is that they made the time to talk to us. You know, when we called in to them, it was never as if they were rushing around. There were no, no voices in the background. I mean, they they paid a lot of money for the training, obviously, and they made it count. So they dedicated sufficient time. They were diligent in their planning. They managed their life very carefully in the sense that if they were not sure of something, they always asked us first. So, for example, if they heard something from a colleague that was different from what we said, they never come back and say, hey, Michael, I'm doing this because a friend did this, said I should do this. No. It was always a situation as, Michael, my friend said I should do this, but you telling me this, I mean, which one is right? Why are they saying this? So, you see, it's a very logical way they approach things. They ask for confirmation. Sometimes the friend gave them good advice and we'd say, what your friend is saying is correct and we recommend you do that. In other cases, your friend is saying this and it's wrong for this reason, right? The other thing they do very well is they take feedback very, very well. I mean, they keep these rolling sheets, A4 paper, out of every session with feedback and it sort of carries through and they say, okay, what did I improve? What didn't I improve? It's one thing to get feedback. It's another thing to use it and I think these candidates are very good at using feedback. The thing that impresses me most about them is just their demeanor. They're very professional, very calm. They lack emotion. Well, they're emotional to a certain extent, but they don't allow emotion to be the centerpiece of the discussion. I mean, if they had a bad interview, they don't focus on why it went bad and so on. They focus on the issues. You know, when I say why it went bad initially, when I say they don't focus on that, I mean they don't focus on the emotional side of things, like they didn't get along with the interview, or it was just bad, the interview was just difficult. We can't help you if you say things like that. You've got to tell us what exactly did you struggle at. Explain the situation from start to finish. Leave out all emotion. Tell us what happened. What is the case? How did you respond? Why did you say this? What was the interviewer's body language? If you give us that information which they gave us, we can very easily pinpoint what the problem is. And sometimes we'll tell them, actually, there was no problem. Sometimes you just had a bad interview. The interview just wasn't interesting. In one case, we had a candidate um, who went in for the interview, and the interviewer was taking calls in the interview and I pointed out to the candidate that the reason the interviewer is doing this based on what you explained to me and they went through a lot of detail explaining it to me is that well the interviewer was probably impressed with you and they felt they didn't need to ask you more questions or interrogate you as carefully as other candidates so you most likely will get through and that's exactly what happened to the candidate so these are the diligent group now what happens to the other group the other group which is not the majority but they're still significant I would say that about 30 percent they were quite big this year they are late. That's the first defining characteristic of this candidate. They're always late with everything. They're always rushing. They're always late. They always cannot manage their time. I mean, one particular candidate went through the screening with us before, I think it was Christmas, well before Christmas, then disappeared for about a week. We took her off the program because we just assumed she wasn't going to join, even though we allowed her in. We then get a mail from her saying that, um, you know what, it's our fault we took her out because she doesn't check her email, she's in exams, which is pretty much ridiculous reasons, right? I mean, everyone should be checking the email in this age of smartphones. We put her in, she then disappeared again. 
then we we put it out again politely of course you know we never blame candidates if they want to not work with us we respect that decision and we'd be more than happy to help them with other things then she comes back and says that she doesn't want to join it because she doesn't know what this training is like so we said fine we're more than happy to do two or three free sessions no strings attached you don't like it we have no problem with it you know we'd be more than happy to train in fact if the two or three sessions end and you're not happy we probably will give you more free sessions if we have time so it's not a big issue at all to us so she said fine came in did the sessions and then kind of disappeared again for a week the point is all those disappearances for the week ended up with her only starting her training somewhere in January when interviews are taking place around the middle of January so it's a characteristic of these candidates just lack of decisiveness lack of planning they never have sufficient time and what happens with these candidates is that they 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 compress their time so much that they not only panic but they believe that there's this unique answer somewhere there that the, the reason they can pass the case is by finding this unique insight so what they do is they sign them up for everything they've got very little time obviously right because they've delayed so long so they've got this u little window period of time two and a half weeks but rather than dedicating themselves to one coach and learning carefully because when you work with one coach he picks up or she picks up the way this candidate does things but this candidate doesn't do that they've spread themselves thin and interview with everyone what's the point when they, and they say they're practicing cases with someone you cannot practice something you don't know so i always find it amusing when candidate says i'm going to you know do a mckinsey interview to practice a case you're not practicing a case you're hoping to learn how to do the case you first need to learn the case and then practice it. But what these candidates do is they compress their time and then sign up for everything. So they, then they end up doing badly because they've never learned how to do a case. So they go into a McKinsey mock interview, do terrible. They go into a Bain mock interview, do terrible. It hurts their self-confidence. It becomes self, you know, um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you shouldn't practice interviews until you learn how to do it, right? And if you've been delaying and compressing the time, you're never going to learn how to do it. So the moral of this story here is, in this particular point for these uh, struggling candidates, is that if you are going to compress your time do not spread yourself too thin going in for your first mckinsey mock interview without having having without ever having done an interview just means you're going to do badly you're not practicing forget you don't use the word practicing when you're doing your first interview you're learning how to do an interview also taking feedback is very important i mean we give these candidates feedback and tell them look don't do it it's going to hurt you bain is going to give you different feedback from mckinsey they're going to approach it from different ways the interviewer doesn't know you if you do this, it's not going to work. You need to first learn the skills, then go in and practice it with these people. We'll, we'll give them this feedback, but they'll just sign themselves even to more practice sessions. Again, they call it practice sessions, but it's not. They're hoping to learn with the McKinsey interview. And let me tell you something. The McKinsey interview in a mock session is not going to teach you anything. They're, they're hoping you've prepared and you can hone your skills. So just be clear about that. But basically, the poor planning really hurts these candidates. And I would say the lack of decisiveness and just, you know, the fact is if you spend three weeks to start your training, you've got to ask yourself how committed you are to this. And the other common characteristics I find of candidates who um, lack this decisiveness is they are very emotional. They will spend more time explaining to us how they felt in the interview rather than what happened, right? And it helps no one when you actually do that. So it's more important that when you are giving feedback that you focus most carefully on telling us what exactly happened. We don't want to know how brilliant the McKinsey interviewers, and of course that's subjective, right? You know, don't put a consulting firm on a pedestal. It just shows that you don't know a lot. They'll tell us how brilliant the interviewers, how, you, they didn't, how the candidate didn't sleep. The candidate is obviously talking about themselves 
how they just weren't there, they had a bad day, you know. I think that if you want to do those things, well, I'm interested to hear it. I mean, get a boyfriend and talk to him about it, or get a girlfriend and talk to her about it. It doesn't help us. I mean, we charge something like $250 an hour. We are highly paid therapists. But we don't deal with that kind of therapy. We deal with facts. We deal with logic. Tell us exactly what happened. Pinpoint the problem. Stick on the issue, and we can obviously help you prepare. So those are the two segments, the ones that haven't done very well, and then what we call the diligent ones. Of course, the ones that struggle can do well, but you can't do well in a short period of time, right? But again, the ones who struggle do struggle to do well. Let's just talk about some of the things that candidates could have done better over this cycle. I think the first one is many candidates underestimate resumes and cover letters. Yeah, I know McKinsey says they're not going to read it, so candidates send in these very rough-and-tumble resumes and cover letters. But the point is this, you don't know what is happening in the office. A consulting firm says they don't read a a resume and cover letter. It doesn't mean you shouldn't put together a good cover letter. I mean, we've had candidates who would say things like, hey, you know what, I submitted my cover letter. Uh, It's... Okay, but, I, but what I tell them is, if you're going to submit a cover letter, why don't you make it the best you possibly can? But candidates listen to too much urban legends when they, when they prepare their applications. My advice, if you're going to do something and it's your name on it, you make sure it's the best in the world. That shows you have burning ambition. So if you're going to put together a cover letter, make sure it's the best in the world. Good enough is not acceptable. And you never know who's going to read it. You don't know who you're up against. Maybe your cover letter is going to change things. Even if firms say they don't review it, if you submitted it, it counts. It is part of your profile. The other thing about resumes is that, and I point this out to everyone, you, uh, there's no way for me to edit a resume in a day. It's impossible because if you ask me to review a resume in a day, I can just edit grammar. Why? Because I can only edit what is on your resume. If there's something important that's not on your resume, how do I know it's not there? So I need to speak to you. So when a candidate sends me a resume and says, hey, I've got to submit this tomorrow, can you have a look at it? I mean, they're just wasting their time. I need to see your resume two weeks before you need to submit it. A week, maybe, but two weeks is what I'd like. I need to look at it. I need to then speak to you to understand each of your bullet points. I've never come across a resume that's well written. In every resume I've reviewed, I've always had substantial edits. People who have worked with us know that. We substantially change your resume because we always find ways to make it better. But candidates send us a resume and say, well, look at it. Okay, I've looked at it. But you know what? I can't do much by just looking at it because I don't know you. If I don't know you, how do I know your resume is a reflection of you? How do I know your resume captures everything you want it to capture? How do I know important things that are not in your resume should be here if I don't know you and I don't know those things that are missing? How do I know what you mean when you say this on your bullet point? Again, resumes cannot be edited overnight. And candidates who ask for that, I mean, they just have a poor interpretation of what a resume is meant to do. So take time and prepare your resume. While your resume is the most single, most important thing you'll put together for your application. And in my opinion, candidates really don't understand how to do that. Attitude is very important. You need to have the right attitude. You cannot fight with your interviewer. We've had candidates, a few, they're the, mono- they're the minority. Our screening obviously picks them up very well. But we do have a few that fly underneath the radar. And they'll, they'll make condescending comments to the interviewer. They will insult the interviewer. They'll tell the interviewer that they are wrong. We've had a candidates tell an interviewer. So the interviewer will ask the candidate a question. And the interviewer will tell, and the interviewee will tell the interviewer, so what do you think? But it's not what they say, it's their tone. We've had a mock interview where a candidate once told us, your products are not as good as you think they are, so you shouldn't be so proud. And, I mean, the point is, we're 
we're not even the real interview. We, while we are putting pressure on the candidate, we're not even close to the pressure you'll be under in a real interview. And if you do this with us, what will you do in a real interview? And the point is, with these candidates, they'll tell us they're not going to do this in the real interview. But what happens in the real interview? They fail. They are combative, confrontational. They just struggle to bond with the interviewer. And the candidate will always come back and say, you know what, I wasn't confrontational, but did you bond? No, because the interviewer didn't want to bond with you. They probably saw your style of, of engaging through the interviews. So the most important thing here is that you never, ever want to have the wrong attitude. Do not be confrontational. Management consultants have to deal with issues that are terrible on a daily basis. Clients don't like them. Ever. So you cannot respond to an aggressive situation by being aggressive. Your job is to diffuse the situation and you practice that in an interview. And I don't and I don't really care if someone tells me this is their strength, that they're confrontational. If you think that's your strength, then you should build a time machine, go back in time and fight in the Roman uh, um, a, a gladiator series. The point is consultants are meant to be diplomatic. We are professional. We're not business people, we are professionals. We hold ourselves to higher standards. If we have to insult someone to make ourselves feel better, then we're not management consultants. There is no excuse for insulting someone, even if an interviewer deserves it. There is no excuse. There's always a better way to handle it. You must also seek feedback and use it. And as I said before, never be emotional. The other point I want to make is, you know, candidates have this ridiculous obsession with frameworks, right? I mean, we've had candidates who will tell us, Michael, just tell us what the frameworks are. And I point out to them, I'm going to tell you what the frameworks are, but that doesn't mean you can use it. It's like giving a waitress in Nevada the plans to build a nuclear bomb. That doesn't mean she can actually build a nuclear bomb, right? I'm not saying that you, our candidates are waitresses in Nevada, but the point I'm trying to make here is that you need to learn the skills to use the frameworks. And not just use the frameworks, to build the frameworks. You will always meet a case that you cannot identify. And if you memorize frameworks, you can't apply the framework because you don't know how to apply it. And it's better to learn how to build a framework from first principles. That is one point we we stress with candidates. Build a framework from first principles. Forget about memorizing frameworks. Some frameworks, yes, you can memorize. But the bottom line is you must build frameworks from first principles. And candidates will tell us this, you know. Just tell me the frameworks. I met someone who knew the framework. That's what she did. So how do you know that? And even if she did that, maybe that's her style appeals to her that way. The point is, do not become obsessed with memorizing frameworks. You'll see how badly you do if you do that. The other common point we get is people who come with the how do I question. They've read some of that they must learn PE, how to do private equity cases. They learn some of they must learn how to do marketing cases. And they say, how do I do this? And they'll ask us this question right at the beginning of their training. And let me explain something to you, right? To win the Olympics, you have to run the 100 meters against an all-star track field, right? To teach you to win the 100 meters, do we put you into, does, your, does a coach put the uh, track athlete into a high-profile, high-stress environment immediately? No. You've got to build yourself up to that point. So candidates come to me and say, like, how do I solve a PE case? And they just assume... Because I've given them the approach, they now can solve a PE case. No. You've got to learn baby steps. You first have to understand what are key questions. What are decision trees? How do you build a decision tree into a simple case like a profitability case? How do you then do a slightly more complex case, a slightly more complex profitability case like a turnaround? How do we then do uh, volume increase cases? How do we then do operation cases? The point is, like anything in life, you don't just go out there 
and run in the final race and win and think that because you ran in the final race you're then ready you have to slowly build yourself up to it and if you think that if you can simply learn a PE case right at the beginning and you'll be great you are mistaken you've got to slowly develop yourself up there I mean it takes about two to three weeks to get there but don't start with the difficult cases first if you have a poor technique you're going to be applying that poor technique to a difficult case so you first have to learn a good technique which is solving cases from first principles and then apply it to difficult cases and then layer on better communication skills on top of that right stories and communication I mean candidates always do miserably when it comes to their fit and you know leadership stories and so on I mean communication skills for most candidates are atrocious I'd say and their their fit stories are just terrible every candidate tells me it's not a problem but let me tell you for every candidate it's your biggest problem candidates are really bad at this and they'll tell me this wonderful story that is so boring and telling me nothing and I'll ask them to change it and they'll say well you know I used the story before and it was good so that's fine if you want to use the story that's okay but we're telling you it's not going to work you need to practice how to communicate and that's what the story is looking for right you need to have good stories you need to understand what you did to convince the team to change its attitude if you cannot do that you don't have a story and we we are very tough on stories because the way you communicate says a lot about you but I'd say by and large I've never met a candidate who has great stories yet never I would say zero we've met candidates who have had okay stories that we've made better but no one's had an acceptable story not even one acceptable story right beyond that I would say these issues are common to all schools there's no one school that does outstanding I mean even the top schools like Stanford and you know Harvard and Wharton and so on there are there are candidates in there that are struggling they know that and they just need to prepare themselves to do well but the point is the issues are common to every single school my other point is about starting too early. Lots of candidates want to start too early. I wouldn't recommend that. The only time you should start very early is that you sh that if if you are sure that as you get closer to the case, you'll constantly be given more difficult and difficult questions. If you start early and you plateau, which means that you are practicing, but the case questions are not more difficult, you build yourself into a rut, which means that because the questions are easy, you don't spend enough time thinking about them and you assume you can solve them and you become annoyed with them. The only time you should start early is if you are learning on a curve which means each subsequent group of questions are more and more difficult so you're constantly learning and then you never become complacent. If you are unable to do this and you're unable to find someone to do this for you then you should not start too early because you will build yourself into a sense of complacency. And finally I just want to talk about again practicing when you practice make sure it is real practice and not learning there's a difference between practicing and learning I'm practicing cases hmm. well that's like practicing to ride a bike right you either know how to ride a bike and you're just learning how to do it better you don't know how to ride a bike and you're learning how to do it for the first time so distinguish between the two practice cases with McKinsey BCG Bain alumni once you know how to do cases but before that you need to learn and I find the vast majority of candidates don't understand this point. They'll go out and they'll call it practicing when they are learning. And let me tell you something. When the McKinsey guy comes to campus and wants to work with you, he's not there to help you practice. He's, help you there, he's, help you, he's there to help you become better, assuming you know the basics very well. So that sort of ties up the internship um, 
cycle obviously doesn't quieten down for us. I mean, we've got the Europeans, quite a lot of interviews in Europe. There's also all kind of experience hires and so on going across in the United States. Obviously, a lot of PhD candidates we're dealing with a lot out of the California region, especially New York and um, and so on. Hopefully that uh, people found this podcast useful and I look forward to your comments over the next few days. Thank you.